The America's National Parks Podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. This year, L.L. Bean is joining up with the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, to help you find your happy place in an amazing system of more than 400 national parks, including historic and cultural sites, monuments, preserves, lakeshores, and seashores that dot the American landscape many of which you'll find just a short trip from home. L.L. Bean is proud to be an official partner of the National Park Foundation. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. Welcome back to part two of our journey along the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. If you haven't listened to part one, you should do so before proceeding to this half of the story. As I'm editing the materials for this episode, Abigail and I, along with our three boys, are following the trail ourselves from Omaha to Sioux City to Vermilion and Yankton, South Dakota, and beyond. We're camping near the Lewis and Clark Recreation Area, just below Gavin's Point Dam. The other night, we happened upon a small trailer at a campsite, outside of which sat two beach cruiser-style bikes, an orange one and a pink one, and two kayaks, and an older gentleman with a smile on his face. The man said hello to Abigail, and they struck up a conversation. He told her that his wife had succumbed to cancer six months prior, and they used to come here twice a year together. This was his first time without her. He brought along her things. He had to. By this time, I met up with Abigail and joined in the conversation. He invited one of us to kayak with him the next day, an activity I'd been longing to do in the calm waters here. The next morning, on the six-month anniversary of his wife's death, he drove us in his old pickup truck to the place where he drops his kayaks in. We get in the water and float below a massive flock of seagulls, the biggest I've ever seen. We take a turn down a small tributary. Four white-tailed deer walk into the water not a hundred feet from us, swim across, and walk out the other side. We talk about the weather, the area, his family, my family. And as I sit in the kayak he bought for his wife, which she was never able to use, he tells me of the moments leading up to her last breath. And he wept with a smile on his face. No matter what you believe in, our public lands are spiritual places. History happened here, but the present does too. Sometimes we need to enter the church of nature to heal. When we left off last time, Meriwether Lewis had just crested the peak of the tallest mountains he had ever seen, hoping to see beyond an easy river float to the Pacific Ocean. Instead, he saw mountains stretching as far as the eye could see. He knew then, as he crossed the Continental Divide, that there was no easy water route to the West Coast. Here's Abigail Trebu.
canoes were no longer useful. Lewis needed horses to get his expedition over the mountains, but this land was the homeland of Sacagawea's people, the Shoshone, and Sacagawea's ability to interpret for the expedition would be essential to their success. While blindly wandering to seek any sign of the Shoshone, Lewis's party saw an Indian on horseback at the crest of a hill. He turned his horse abruptly and galloped away, but Lewis followed, finding a well-worn trail. He returned to the core of discovery. It was Sacagawea's moment. She walked the trail with her baby son on her back until they found the tribe. She sat down to speak to the chief when perhaps one of the greatest coincidences in American history happened. She suddenly recognized the chief of the Shoshone, the man for whom she was supposed to interpret, as her brother. The Corps of Discovery was successful in negotiating with the Shoshone for horses. Although she got to see her old friends and her family, Sakagawea did not stay with the Shoshone. She continued with Lewis and Clark, her husband and baby, as the captains looked westward and hoped to find a way to the Pacific Ocean before the harsh winter set in. The explorers traveled overland on horseback north to Lolo Pass, where they crossed the Bitterroot Range on the Lolo Trail. After everything they had encountered so far, this would be the most difficult part of the journey. They nearly starved before fate would have them stumble into the camps of the Nez Perce Indians, who fed them and pointed them to the Pacific. They made new canoes, left their horses with the tribe for safekeeping, and floated down the Clearwater, Snake, and Columbia Rivers, portaging dangerous waterfalls and trading with Indians along the way. They reached the Pacific Ocean by mid-November 1805. Having failed to find a water route to the Pacific but discovering so much more, now they had to make it through another winter and return. Once in sight of the ocean, the expedition was lashed by harsh winds and cold rain as they huddled together on the north side of the Columbia River. It was decided to stay on the south side of the river inland where the winds and rain would be less severe and there would be more elk to hunt for food and clothing. In December, the explorers built a fort near present-day Astoria, Oregon and settled in for the winter. Lewis and Clark accomplished considerable scientific work and gathered and recorded information regarding the country and its inhabitants. 
The men spent most of their winter making clothing and moccasins out of elk hides and trying to hunt for food in an area which seemed to have very little game. No contact was made with any trading ships, and Lewis and Clark knew that all the men would have to return to the United States by an overland route. On March 23, 1806, the return trip began. After a tough journey up the Columbia River against strong currents and many waterfalls, the party retrieved their horses from the Nez Perce and waited in Indian villages for the deep mountain snows to melt. It wasn't until June that they could get over the mountains and back to the Missouri River Basin. After crossing the bitter routes, Lewis and Clark decided to split their party at Lolo Pass in order to add to the knowledge they could gather. They wanted to be certain that there was not an easier way to cross the continent to the Pacific, and that they had not missed an important potential route or pass. Confident of their survival, Lewis went north along the Missouri River, while Clark went south along the Yellowstone River. They planned to rendezvous where the Yellowstone and Missouri Rivers come together in western North Dakota. Clark took the larger group with him, including Sacagawea, her husband and son, and York. Lewis took along the best hunters and outdoorsmen. While on the Marias River in Montana, Lewis's small group had a fight with a party of Blackfeet Indians. Lewis fired his gun in battle for the first time, killing two men as they tried to steal their guns and horses at a place now known as the Two Medicine Fight Site. This was the only violent encounter of their entire journey, but it wouldn't be the only bullet injuries. While out hunting one day, Lewis was accidentally shot by a nearsighted member of his own crew. The painful wound in his backside kept him from being able to sit down or continue his journal writing. Soon after the near disaster, the Corps of Discovery was reunited in North Dakota. They returned to the Mandan villages where they left Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and the baby behind. Clark promised to take care of the baby, who he nicknamed Pomp. Three years later, Charbonneau and Sacagawea brought Pomp down to St. Louis, where William Clark saw to his schooling. The Lewis and Clark expedition returned to St. Louis on September 23, 1806. When people in the settled portions of the United States heard that Lewis and Clark had returned from the West, they could hardly believe it. Most people had given them up for dead. If wild animals, hunger, harsh weather, or Indians hadn't killed them, then perhaps they were lost, they thought. Of course, none of those things happened. Lewis, Clark, and nearly all their men returned to St. Louis as heroes. The Corps of Discovery disbanded, and their detailed descriptions of the journey, maps, and the numerous specimens they had collected were sent to Philadelphia to be housed in part at the American Philosophical Society and later at the Academy of Natural Sciences. 
Lewis and Clark described for science at least 120 mammals, birds, reptiles, and fish, as well as at least 182 plant species. They made the first attempt at a systematic record of the meteorology of the West, and less successfully attempted to determine the latitude and longitude of significant geographical points. The explorers encountered fierce grizzly bears which attacked them. The bears were so tough that even several rifle shots wouldn't kill them. They documented pronghorn, antelopes, bighorn sheep, mule deer, mountain beaver, white weasel, mountain goat, coyote, and various species of rabbit, squirrel, fox, and wolf. In addition to their descriptions, Lewis and Clark sent or brought back a large number of zoological specimens, including a few live ones, as well as skins, bones, skeletons, teeth, talons, and horns. The geographical findings were of outstanding significance. Lewis and Clark determined the true course of the Upper Missouri and its major tributaries. They discovered that a long portage separated it from the Columbia River, which proved to be a majestic stream rivaling the Missouri itself, rather than a short coastal river. Neither the Missouri nor the Columbia was found to be navigable to its source, as many had believed. The explorers also learned that, instead of a narrow and easily traversed mountain range, two broad north-south systems, the Rockies and the Cascades, represented major barriers. Passing for the most part through country that no European Americans had seen, the two captains dotted their map with names of streams and natural features. Clark made his scientific mark primarily in the field of cartography, for which his training consisted mainly of some experience in practical surveying and a limited amount of army mapping. Yet his relatively crude maps, prepared under field conditions, enriched geographical knowledge and stimulated cartographical advances. Of particular importance were the three progressively improved maps Clark drew between 1804 and 1810 of the Western United States and Lower Canada. These were mainly based on the observations of the two captains, data provided by the Indians, earlier maps of the West, and the journals of preceding explorers. Lewis and Clark also made significant additions to the botanical knowledge of the continent. Jefferson believed that the voyages of discovery would add to the world's supply of food crops and plants beneficial to humankind. Lewis and Clark were directed to pay special attention to the soil and face of the country, its growth and vegetable productions, especially those not of the U.S., the explorers collected hundreds of plant specimens and recorded information on their habitats, growth, and uses by American Indians. They discovered about 80 species new to science, including future state flowers for Oregon, Idaho, and Montana, as well as the state grass of Montana. Their collections formed the basis for the first major scientific publication 
that described and illustrated the plants west of the Mississippi River. After their triumphant return to St. Louis, Lewis and Clark made their way east, pausing for three weeks at Locust Grove, home of Clark's sister, and finally arriving in Washington, D.C., where they told President Jefferson in person about the wonders they had seen in the West. Both Lewis and Clark were rewarded for their success. Clark was appointed Indian agent at St. Louis after his marriage in 1808. Five years later, he became governor of the Missouri Territory. In 1822, President Monroe appointed him superintendent of Indian affairs to establish and secure treaties with the Western tribes. He died in St. Louis in 1838. Lewis was appointed to the governorship of the Louisiana Territory, a challenging position in which he struggled to appease many divided factions. Lewis failed at many aspects of the governorship, however most notably in the public perception of how he spent official government funds. Lewis was traveling to Washington, D.C. in 1809 to explain his actions and clear his name, when he died of two gunshot wounds, one to his head, the other to his heart. Most historians believe that Lewis committed suicide due to depression and problems in his life and career, while a popular belief continues that he was murdered, perhaps by representatives of his political enemies. The explorer was buried not far from where he died, and today a memorial along the Natchez Trace Parkway pays tribute to the man who led the voyage of discovery to the Pacific Ocean. Over 200 years later, the pathway taken by these explorers has been greatly altered. Highways across the continent where once only American Indian trails and rivers were used for travel and communication. Towns and cities founded by American pioneers moving westward have altered the landscape, and the courses of rivers have been altered by dams, in some instances forever covering campsites once used by the Corps of Discovery. There are, however, large areas, such as the Nez Perce National Historical Park, that remain relatively unspoiled. The most unchanged section of the entire Lewis and Clark route is the White Cliffs section of the Missouri River in north-central Montana, a stretch of the trail now protected by Congress that is only accessible by boat. This place, with its eerie sandstone formations, Lewis described as scenes of visionary enchantment. The Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail traces the route of the explorers as closely as possible, given these changes over the years. Today, you can follow in the approximate footsteps of Lewis and Clark by boat, canoe, or kayak, by car or bus, on foot or bicycle, or by train, exploring the route they traveled and reliving the adventure of the Corps of Discovery. 
If you take the journey along the historic Lewis and Clark Trail or join up with it at any point, you can feel the spark of discovery. A great place to begin is at the newly christened Gateway Arch National Park, which houses a museum below the arch focused on westward expansion. In Omaha, Nebraska, you can visit the small visitor center that marks the headquarters of the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail on the waterfront. Here you can see some of the objects that journeyed along with the Corps of Discovery. This two-part episode of America's National Parks was written largely by National Park Service employees as part of the interpretive materials for the former Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, now Gateway Arch National Park, and it was narrated by Abigail Trebu. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our new America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources, music credits, and more in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.